We love supporting and promoting the creators of musical theater throughout the world. And we would love to have your support as well. Go to musicaltheaterradio.com and click on the Become a Patron button because a supportive community is a strong community. Welcome back to another episode of Be Our Guest here on Musical Theater Radio. I am your host, as always, Jean-Paul Yovanoff. In musical theater, there are legendary writing teams, Candor and Ebb, Lerner and Lowe, Comden and Green, and yes, I know they both wrote lyrics and book, but legends nonetheless. But few have had the cultural impact, not only in the musical theater world, but beyond the walls of the theater, like Richard Rogers and Oscar Hammerstein II. Even people who know nothing about musical theater probably have heard of at least a few of their works, you know, Oklahoma or, of course, Sound of Music. Today, we're going to delve into one of their other incredible shows, Carousel. So I'd like to welcome to the show Barry Kester, the author of the book Round in Circles, the story of Rogers and Hammerstein's Carousel. Welcome, Barry. Hello. Hello. Nice to meet you, Jean-Paul, and thank you very much for inviting me onto the show. No problem. No problem. Now, before we delve into the book and we talk more about that, I want to get to know uh, you a little bit better um, so so our listeners know who you are as well. So in 30 seconds, we're going to get a bio. So what is the 30-second bio of Barry? The 30-second bio of Barry? Well, Barry was born in 1944. Um, a year after Oklahoma and a year before Carousel. So that explains my love of Rodgers and Hammerstein and the golden age of Broadway musicals. In general, I grew up with it. It was the soundtrack to my childhood, all these wonderful, all these wonderful shows. Um, and I'm speaking to you not as a professional author, not as a theater historian or a musicologist, simply as a fan who had a crazy idea one day and took his fandom a little bit too far and decided to write a book about his favorite show. Um, My background, I was a chartered accountant, I had my own practice. Um, And when I stopped working around 2010, I had this crazy idea. Uh, And our conversation today is the result of that crazy idea. (laughs) Nice. So you said when you were growing up that you you were already into musical theater and that sort of thing. Are you kind of the black sheep of the family or is is that across the the family who are into theater? No, I I think um, my parents' generation, my father was in the film business. So um, on the distribution side. So we were, if you like, on the periphery of the entertainment industry. Um, perhaps more aware of things than other households. Um, but, uh, and my parents were big theatre goers. In fact, they said, and I'm sure the story is apocryphal, that they took me to the initial run of Oklahoma, uh, oh. Drury Lane, in the, uh, in, the, in the mid-1940s. I'd been three or four, so, I mean, <laughs> people don't do it today. So I, I'm, I'm sure they didn't take me, but... I was literally thrown into it and certainly not the black sheep. Okay. Nice. <laughs> so, let, let's jump ahead. <laughs> so let's jump ahead to 2010. You've retired. You're no longer the accountant. Um, what was the inspiration to write this book? What was that aha moment? Well, um, like many, many people, um, 
I long had a, a, a dream of perhaps trying my hand at writing it. I love reading um, and I've always enjoyed writing. Even my professional letters, I took a great deal of pride in. I always felt it was, um, if you're gonna have an argument with um, His Majesty's Revenue and Customs as it now is, um, better to entertain them with a well-written letter than bore them to tears with pages and pages of drivel. So, um, <laughs> That was uh, that. That was the key motivation. But I, I, th I thought if I ever were to do so, it would be a novel. Um, but over the years, I'd built up a massive library of books about musical theatre, biographies of Rogers, Hammerstein, Kern, Gershwin, and the like. Um, stories about individual musicals, and there was nothing, nothing about Carousel. And I did some more research to make sure that there wasn't one out there and that um, I hadn't missed it. There wasn't. And so I thought, all right, let's ease our way into this writing lark and, uh, and, and try something which I thought would be a little simpler. Um, how wrong could I have been? <laughs> it, it, it was crazy. I, I, had a, I had a good knowledge of the background to the show. Um, but not enough to write a whole book. And I had no idea whether I would get any cooperation from Rogers, the Rogers and Hammerstein organization. Would, would they encourage me? Would they discourage me? Um, would they give me access to their records? Would I get access to the Rogers and Hammerstein's papers um, in the various libraries across the United States? Um, I, I, I had no idea. I mean, as it turned out, hello. We've... Oh. Just like live theater. <laughs> Maybe that's Rogers and Hammerstein Foundation calling you. And Maybe. Maybe. And you. <laughs> I, was on the, I was on the point of saying, as it turned out, they, they were incredibly cooperative uh, um, all the way. So, you know, that, that's how it started. Um, and that was back in, in 2010. Um, in the meantime, life got in the way a great deal. Um, I lost my wife in 2013. Um, then I had the good fortune to meet my present partner. Um, we bought a house together. We knocked it down and rebuilt it. Um, so it wasn't really until about 2016, 2017, that I got down to the nitty gritty. Wow. It's, you know, just like, like writing a musical, it takes time. And sometimes there's starts and stops to it. And like you said, life gets in the way of, of things. And, but you know, that, that, that germ, that inspiration was always there. Um, so mm. congratulations on just, just following through. That's the, some of the times the hardest thing. So the fact that you wrote it is, is fantastic. So, um, Tell us, explain to the listeners, some, some of them might not know the plot of Carousel. So you could tell us the plot and then maybe the background and how it got to be part of the musical theater canon of works. Um, I think it was always destined to be part of musical theater canon. Um, Carousel is based on a play by Ferenc Molnar, Hungarian playwright, and it had its premiere in in uh, 1909, a play called Lilium. Um, and it uh, was not well received initially. 
it wasn't well received until after the First World War, um, when it was substantially rewritten with the help of um, a German playwright, friend of Molnar's. Um, uh, and then that revised play um, became a huge hit uh, across Europe and in 1921 in New York. Um, and the reason I say it was always destined to be a musical, a part of musical theatre is because one of the people who admired the play was uh, Giacomo Puccini, who begged Molnar to grant him the rights to turn it into an opera. Um, Molnar turned to Puccini and said, um, no way is that happening, my friend. I want Lilium to be remembered as a great Molnar play, not as the libretto of a Puccini opera. And yet 20 years later, um, he gave Rodgers and Hammerstein the rights. Um, so Lilium tells a story of a carousel barker, um, the Lilium of the title, who falls in love with um, a young, in, uh, in Lilium, she's a housekeeper called Julie. Um, and they get together. Um, Lilium has a somewhat violent disposition. He hits Julie, um, gets, uh, when Julie becomes pregnant, um, Lilium gets desperate for some money and it takes part in an ill-fated robbery. Um, rather than get caught, he kills himself. And then you get the scenes in heaven, which uh, people who know Carousel will take, um, follows. Um, in Lilium, there's no redemption for Lilium. He ends up burning forever in, in hell. Um, so it's an unlikely subject for a musical, certainly an American musical. It might be, might be likely for a Puccini opera, but it's certainly not likely for a, an American musical. Um, and so when um, the Theatre Guild, who produced Lilium on Broadway, um, approached Rodgers and Hammerstein after their success with Oklahoma, uh, their initial reaction was absolutely not, absolutely not. And yet there was something about the play which um, attracted them uh, and they couldn't let it go. And eventually their no became a yes. And I do explain that process um, in the book. Nice. So I also explain it um, in, in the book how the English translation although it is credited to a chap by the name of Benjamin Glazer, there is, in my opinion, a 70, 80% likelihood that that English translation was by Lawrence Hart, Richard oh. Rogers' former partner, rather yeah. than Glazer, who actually gets the credit. There's a lot of circumstantial evidence pointing in that direction. Very interesting. So, so let's just take it back. What was the difference between Rogers and Hammerstein getting the rights to do it and Puccini not? Obviously, there was a there was a time difference. What what happened that one was that got accepted and the other one didn't? Well, after Puccini turned after Puccini was turned down by Molnar, um, 
Franz Lehar approached Molnar, um, Gershwin approached Molnar, and there was a very serious attempt by Kurt Weill um, as well um, to persuade them to uh, persuade Molnar to, uh, to let him have the rights. Molnar kept saying, no, no, no. And what turned him around was that um, in October 1943, in one final desperate effort, the directors of the Theatre Guild, Theresa Helburn and um, Lawrence Langner, persuaded Molnar to go, and he was living in New York by that time at the Plaza Hotel, persuaded him to go and see a performance of Oklahoma. Molnar knew Green Grow the Lilacs, the play on which Molnar, uh, uh, Green, uh, Oklahoma was based. And he was so captured by Oklahoma that he changed his mind. Wow. He was, I suspect that the queues around the block to get tickets for Oklahoma <laughs> might have had an influence as well because although he ended up with quite a small percentage, it was a, a very nice pension fund to have. <laughs> it's never been admitted, but uh, one can draw one's own conclusions. <laughs> but it was literally the day, the day after seeing Oklahoma, he said, all right. And at that point, uh, the Theatre Guild hadn't even approached Rogers and Hammerstein about doing the shows. So they thought they were onto a, a, another absolute winner. Um, and they met as they were doing uh, every week for lunch at Sardis. Um, and they put the proposal to Rogers and Hammerstein. And as one, they turned, they turned around and said, no, are you mad? <laughs> That's crazy. That's crazy. Um, but I'm glad they did turn around and decide to do it. Oh, my. <laughs> so the book is not just about carousel because I, I i understand you you talk about the relationships between rogers and, and hammerstein L love to hear a little bit about that and and you know um how they work together and and that sort of thing <clears throat> um rogers rogers have been with larry hart for over 20 years um, Hammerstein worked a lot with Jerome Kern, but he never had that sort of exclusive relationship that Rogers and Hart had. Um, by 1942, Larry Hart was a non-functioning alcoholic, and Rogers had approached Hammerstein a year earlier um, with a view to working, them working together. He knew that his days with Hart were, were numbered. Um, they had a tremendous respect for each other and their partnership uh, for the rest of Hammerstein's life was, was based on that mutual respect. They were very, very different men. Um, Hammerstein, very much a country guy, not, a, not an urban city party goer. Um, Richard Rogers was... Um, much more the city type. Um, uh, so they had not a great deal in common. In fact, I think throughout the relationship, they only went on holiday together once, the two families. Hmm. But they had a tremendous working respect for each other. They decided at the very start, there were two 
fundamental rules they agreed on from the very start. One, that Hammerstein would write the lyrics first, which was unheard of on Broadway. Rogers, every song he wrote with Larry Hart, music came first. But they wanted to write a new type of musical. And this was also something, uh, a fundamental part of their relationship. They wanted to get away from the silly, trivial plots of the 1920s and 30s musicals. They wanted to tackle more serious matter. They wanted to write for character. And to do that, they felt it far preferable to have the lyrics arising naturally out of the book. And so uh, Rogers agreed to that, to change his working style completely. Uh, The other key issue that they agreed upon was that if either of them did not like something the other had written, there would be no debate, it would go. They they had their awkward moments. Richard Rogers, um, and I had the pleasure of meeting Rogers once um, in my my youth. Um, Rogers undoubtedly was a difficult character. Uh, And one of the joys I had in my research in the New York Public Library, looking through his correspondence was to try and find out if Rogers was as black as he has often been painted, even by his family. Hmm. Um, So he he was, as I say, an awkward character. Um, He gave praise very lightly. Uh, And at one point during the writing of The King and I, they their relationship uh, got very thoroughly tested. Um, Hammerstein, this is a bit of a diversion from Carousel, but Hammerstein had labored for weeks on the lyric of Hello Young Lovers. And when it was finally finished, he thought it was one of the best lyrics he'd ever written. And he sent it off, no email in those days, just stuck it in the post and uh, sent it off to Rogers and waited for a phone call to say, yes, I like it. And days went by and he hadn't heard anything. Uh, And in the end, he phoned Rogers, uh, asked asked him if he'd received the lyric. And Rogers said, yes. And Hammerstein said, and it'll do. And that was it. And uh, as I say, that was almost a breaking point. And after King and I, Rogers took a break. He wrote the music for Victory at Sea, a television documentary series. And they, they did take a, a little break from one another, but they knew they needed each other. And they well, got Wow. I, I knew about the 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 writing process of, uh, you know, with Rogers and Hart, how they wrote, and then Rogers and Hampson. But I did not know about these rules that, that you mentioned, which... The the first one, I, I kind of had an idea of writing the lyrics first, but yeah, I didn't know about the, you know, we could veto each other if we didn't like it. It's, it, it's I'm sure it wasn't as harsh as that. Rogers no. actually, used, um, uh, in a television interview I saw, he, he said um, um, something along the lines, we'll try it your way. If that doesn't work, we'll try it my way. Um, well, you know what? It seemed to work because we got some incredible yeah, songs and shows. It absolutely did. I mean, 
they, their relationship was like a marriage. In fact, and probably in, in some ways it was tougher than a marriage because everything they did was in the glare of uh, the spotlight. Wow. Even in those days. So you, t- you mentioned in the book um, other productions of the the of carousel through through time and you mentioned that the national theater's 1992 production uh, has been yeah. said it's the finest production uh, to date what what made it stand out amongst all the other ones including the original um well first of all nicholas heitner is a brilliant director um he stripped it down he went back to Molnar's original play and allowing for the fact that the setting was moved from Budapest to um, Maine, um, he wanted to get the grittiness back. Um, the, the common word about that 1992 um, production was how dark it was. Hmm. Um, they weren't, the characters weren't dressed in bright, colorful Broadway costumes. They were made to look dirty. You could almost smell them. Mm-hmm. You know, these were people at the bottom, very bottom end of society. And um, Heitner brought that out. Um, he went against type and he probably wouldn't have been able to do so had Rogers and Hammerstein been alive um, in 1992, um, they always cast singer actors. Uh, the voice, the singing voice was much more important. Um, Heitner employed actor singers. Mm. Um, so the Billy, for example, um, listened to the, the LP. I don't want to do him. Uh, that's showing my age saying LP. Listen, listen, listen to that. <laughs> I have tons of LPs, download. no worries. <laughs> download or whatever. Um, listen, listen to um, listen to that production. And he's on, he, he's the only one who came and did it in New York as well. Um, he hasn't got a great singing voice, but he acts the part of Billy so well. Um, and the same applies to um to, to the actress uh, who played um, who, who played Julie, not a pure soprano like Jan Clayton who who originated the role. Um, their acting ability to to really get into these Molnar characters and they are, remember the characters not created by Rogers and Hammerstein, but created by one of the 20th century's great European playwrights. Um, they, they got they got those characters. And that's what made it so special. Um, Did you get had, to see it? I saw it four times. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, let me ask that you saw it four times. Did you notice something different every time? It was the first professional production I had ever seen. Mm-hmm. It hadn't been on in London prior to the uh, original 1951 production. But I mean, every time you went to go see it at, for that one production, did you notice different things that you didn't notice the last time you went to see it? Was it was it that in depth and, and layered? Um, I, I I really can't remember. I, I was a lot younger then. 
I hear you. <laughs> I'm, I'm much more critical now. I'm, you know, I saw um, I saw the 2018 Broadway revival okay. that Jack O'Brien um, staged on Broadway, um, and I was so bitterly disappointed with that. I I had been warned by someone who had seen it that I wouldn't enjoy it. Yeah. Uh, and he, uh, that person wasn't uh, wasn't wrong. It was very disappointed, very disappointing. Um, but against that, um, this last summer there was a production in a small hotel theatre in the middle of England that I travelled up to see. Mm -hmm. um, fabulous cast, an orchestra of twelve, but they did it absolutely beautifully. And I've seen it. I've seen a production in a, an off-off-off West End theatre in um, about 2014, 2015, um, an orchestra of five, but again, it was done so sympathetically um, with such great sensitivity by the cast that it was, um, it was a beautiful production. And I think that's one of the reasons why um, this show and others like it will survive because there is a solid foundation there. And if you have a director who's canny enough to, to let the play speak at his own interpretation, mm -hmm. but let respect what the creators came up with, respect the creator's vision, these great works will survive. They don't need, it's lovely to hear Carousel with an orchestra of 40 or 50, but it works. It can work with an orchestra of five. And I was about to say that because the original play, right? It's a gritty, right? And, it, and, and it's that sort of thing. And when you make it big and luscious, it, it loses something. So I, I totally understand where you're coming from um, with that. And yeah, orchestra of four in, in a simple theater is, can be just as powerful, if not more, than a mm. big 2000 Broadway house. So, so uh, quick question. How many times do you think you've seen Carousel? <laughs> I know, not... <laughs> well, one of the consequences um, of, of the big five Rogers and Hammerstein shows, Oklahoma, Carousel, South Pacific, King and I, and Sound of Music, Carousel by 1992 had become a little bit neglected. It's not an easy watch. The subject matter alone makes it not an easy watch in spite of its fabulous score. So it had fallen a little bit out of favor. It hasn't, wasn't being revived as much as the others. As I say, it hadn't been in London since uh, 1951. Um, what Nicholas Heitner's production did was to strip it back and remind everybody what a fantastic piece of theater it is. And since then, it's hardly been off the stage. Um, it's been all over the States. There have been many uh, great productions in the States, and there's been a lot of productions here in London. I've, so since that production, uh, 1992, I've probably seen um, half a dozen times. That's impressive. <laughs> <laughs> because like you said, if, if it's... You got to have a find a company that wants to do the show, but you know the fact that you've been able to see it all those times—that's great. One of the things that's happening to Carousel is that um, it is being performed by opera companies. Hmm. Um, 
uh, I, I saw a wonderful production here uh, in 2012 by Opera North, which is our number one provincial opera company in the UK. And it was done by English National Opera at uh, the Coliseum uh, three years ago. It's been done by several opera companies um, in, uh, in the States. And maybe that's, again, where its future lies. Puccini somewhere going, I knew that. <laughs> I knew it would work. <laughs> so. Well, I, I, it's, I, when I started doing the, the, the book, Puccini's name kept coming up. And I have long said, and I, I said this to um, Ted Shapin at the Rogers and Hammerstein organization in one of our conversations, that to me, Rogers is the Puccini of Broadway. There's a richness to his music, his harmonies that are very Puccini-esque. Mm. And the bench scene, the first scene in Carousel, um, is an absolute direct descendant, if you will, um, of Act One in La Boheme, where Rodolfo and Mimi meet and fall in love. Mm. Wow. There's a tremendous similarity there. So I have to ask this one. I was, I was looking at your stuff and you'll never walk alone as associated with a football club at Liverpool, I believe. Uh, I've never heard of this <laughs> because I'm over here in North America. So I didn't know about this. How does a song from an American Broadway musical from the 40s end up as a British football club's song? Well, I, I, I've written a chapter on that very subject. Yeah. So I think if, if people want to know, they're going to have to read. Um, <laughs> very... Uh, um okay short short answer yeah just a little little taster so we want to uh, be more <laughs> short answer in 1963 uh the height of the beatles um pop artists like paul mccartney um were looking ahead to the days when their pop career would uh, be over and would they continue to be able to have a career in show business mm. so the Beatles recorded um, the song Till There Was You from Music Man and it did very very well so Jerry and the Pacemakers who had two number one hits with pop songs um, decided to follow suit and Jerry Marsden, the leader of the group, loved Carousel. He'd seen the film a number of times, and he suggested, you'll never walk alone. Jerry and the Mars, Jerry and the Pacemakers are a Liverpool group, like the Beatles were also a Liverpool group. Um, and what used to happen in those days before the match started, a football match started, over the sound system, they would play the number one songs of the day. Um, they started playing You'll Never Walk Alone just before kickoff um, at Anfield, Liverpool Stadium. Um, and it, it took, and the crowd started singing along. And whereas normally, as the record disappeared down and out of the pop charts, yeah and would not be heard again, the crowd wouldn't let You'll Never Walk Alone go. <laughs> so it became adopted. And it's now the inscription on the Liverpool shirt crest. It's the 
Um, The words, you'll never walk alone, are on the gates to the stadium. Um, It is absolutely um, part of Liverpool's culture. And as I am not a Liverpool supporter, uh, (laughs) it's a real kick in the teeth to me. (laughs) I'd much rather it were my team song. I'm I'm curious how many uh, attendees at the football games know that this is from a, you know a musical from the 40s or they just they just kind of sing along with it now because they know I'm curious. I, I I suspect a lot of them do know okay. they they cannot not know after all these years Oh man okay as a side note what's your what what's your club that you follow my club, the uh, Tottenham Hotspur. Okay, they're doing well. To from what I saw, aren't they like in second or something? Uh, yeah, but uh, very, very patchy. Okay, <laughs> we'll just leave it at that then. <laughs> they have as many flops as hits. <laughs> okay, okay. As a really side note, what Rodgers and Hammerstein song would you think should be a uh, Tottenham clubs? would you like if you could choose <laughs> you know what i have never ever um i have never never considered that question um nobody probably has <laughs> be honest, but... um i have for some reason bloody mary is coming to mind <laughs> I would take it. That'd be awesome to hear them singing that. <laughs> um, Barry, how how do people find your book? Um, the where, the what, the how, and all that sort of thing. Well, um, my publisher is a small independent publisher in Manchester, so they haven't got the resources of um, one of the major major publishing houses. Um, but it's on Amazon. Um, and it is being distributed by gardeners who supply all major bookstores. So it should be available in whatever your equivalent of Barnes and Noble is, or maybe you have Barnes and Noble in Canada, I don't know. I don't even know. Uh, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> I don't even know. Um, Barry, uh, congratulations uh, on writing the book and um, sticking with it from that you know, that idea at the beginning to getting it done. It takes a lot of, uh, you know, heart and and will and desire to do it. So I, whatever happens, I have to congratulate you on that. So thank, thank you, you very much. No problem. And thank you for coming on today. Uh, we'll, we'll post in our social media uh, how people can get the book and put some links in there for you. And thank you for being such a, a kind and generous interviewer. No problem, no problem. All right. We were just speaking with Barry Kester, the author of the book, Round in Circles, The Story of Rogers and Hammerstein's Carousel. Tune in next week as we'll speak with another guest or guests about the life, love, and passion that is musical theater. I'm your host as always, Jean-Paul Yovanoff. And until next time, I'll see you when I see you.